Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I am excited to be with you this Sunday. We have a lot to talk about today. This is a, another big chapter, and it's not necessarily an easy chapter. This is one of those passages that is a little hard. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to um, wrap our heads around. It's simple, but it's hard. And this is a passage that it has been profitable to me, it's been convicting to me, and I'm excited to share some of what God has been teaching me through this passage. So we will be reading all of Romans chapter 7 today. And so without further ado, let us dive into um, this hard passage of scripture. Picking up in verse 1 in the English Standard Version, and it says, Do you know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries... <clears throat> and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law, through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members, to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through this commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and though it killed me. And through it killed me. 
So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That is a mouthful. There is, there's a lot in there, but these are concepts that we can't quite separate. They're all very cohesive. And Romans 7 is an important chapter in this section of Romans. Romans 5 through 8 is kind of a subcategory in Romans. Romans 1 through 4 shows us our sin. And it shows us that faith in Christ saves us from our sin. But Romans 5 through 8 gives us a grand picture of our relationship to God as justified sinners. And Romans 7 um, is kind of the, the odd one. That Romans 5 and 6 shows us that we are set free from, from sin. So Romans 5 and 6 shows us that we're set free from sin. So we have this arc forming. And then it kind of dips when we hit 7. When, when Paul is saying things like, there's nothing good in me. And then we end on a high note with Romans 8. And so there's kind of this, this theme that's forming here. If you've been watching the last couple of weeks, there's this theme that's forming. And Romans 7 is kind of setting the record straight on some things. And in Romans chapter 7, there are four items that Paul is laying out. And they're all important. They're all things that we should give time to. But they're things that we have to understand together. And so those four things are our relationship to the law as the church. The purpose of the law. The problem of sin in the believer and the remedy that is in Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about today one piece at a time. And so and so with verse verses 1 through 6, we're we're going to be talking about the law. And Paul uses an example to talk about the law that we would call in our modern times case law. This 
idea of a precedence that is set by a particular example that shows how other laws are laws and instances are to be navigated and he demonstrates the law's function that it doesn't continue to be a salvific act this is not something that determines where we stand with god paul illustrates this with a marriage example keeping in step with the idea that we are the bride of christ jeremiah 31 um, this was promised in the old testament it says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and the house of judah not like the covenant i made with their fathers on the day when i took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant that they broke though i was their husband declares the lord for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more <laughs> so he says they're they're going to make a new covenant this was a promise god gave to jeremiah in the old testament but then it says in hebrews now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever amen so jeremiah says new covenant but jesus hebrews says the covenant and that's something we have to work through a little bit when we talk of the covenant what we understand in the ter this term new covenant is a new administration of the old covenant all this means is that the way the covenant operated in the old testament is the same it's just being monitored and governed by different people and those different people are now christ the same means function and process exist just in a greater fulfillment because all these things point to the gospel and the person and work of christ it also says in hebrews that he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant so we have this we have a new covenant and part of this new covenant is we are not judged according to the law because we are in christ and we are counted righteous according to who christ is and so we are released from the law as paul has illustrated with a marriage that we are we're the bride of christ and we are released from that law of the first husband because the first husband has died there has been a death that has released us from the law that the death of christ and his resurrection released us from the law as a binding authority for where we stand with god But this does leave us with the question what does the law mean then 
If the law was to be released, and God in his sovereignty knew he would do that, then why would he institute it in the first place? If we have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that we may belong to him who was raised from the dead, then why was the law given in the first place? And that's, that's, that's a very real question. Paul, as we've seen in earlier chapters, is very good at anticipating questions. And so he's asking rhetorical questions here to make us think. So if the law is something we're released from, if it's no longer, does that mean it's no longer a good thing? And he says, no, by no means. This is a good thing. We've got to put it in its proper place. And so he says in verse 7, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. For if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And so we have this issue with the law. Of what is the law? What does the law do? Is it different than what it did in the Old Testament? Why did God give us the law? Because God is eternal. And what he does is for eternity. And so there has to be this hard set purpose. And I think there are probably multiple purposes if we were to dedicate a lot of study to this topic alone. Um, I really hesitate to nail down one thing for anything in scripture really. Because I don't think there's ever really one thing. that God's word is complex. And there are... God's word is complex, and there are multiple meanings. There are different levels in all this, and it's it's hard to wrap our heads around sometimes. And I think the law is one of those things, that there's not one purpose. There are many purposes. And there are two that come into play in Romans 7. Are there others? I'm sure there are. I, I truly believe there are. But John Calvin is helpful in us wrapping our heads around the law as it applies to this passage. And he writes, In explaining those things which are necessary for the true knowledge of God, we pointed out that no one can conceive of him in all his greatness without at once being seized by the thought that he is the only one to whose majesty and supreme honor is due. As for the knowledge of ourselves, we have argued that the main thing is to rid ourselves of any illusions of our own strength, and to abandon all trust in our own righteousness. However, we must be humbled by the thought of our utter poverty, and must learn humility, so as to abase or reduce ourselves to cease all boasting. We observe both these things in the law of God. There the Lord, after first reserving to himself the power to command, teaches us to revere his deity and show us what this reverence entails. He then lays down the rule of righteousness and rebukes us both for our frailty and for our lack of ability to do good is weak and availing. So the, the law of God works on multiple levels. And he, John Calvin explains it, it does among others, it does two things. It shows us God, and it shows us ourselves. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And so the law points us to our own spiritual bankruptcy. But it also points us to a God who is better than we are.
the, the law shows us what God is like, why we need to be redeemed, and what his redeemed people must do. Verse, verse 10 says, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The law didn't invent sin. The law was not created at Sinai. God has always been righteous, and in the same way. Sin was embedded in our nature immediately after the fall. The law only revealed to us what was already there. The law was, simply put, lifting the log and showing the bugs underneath. It's Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. The law is good. And because the law is good, we must be born again. We have violated his law, and the sin we commit is exposed and ready for judgment. But those who cling to the Lord shall live. But no one is righteous, not even one, because we have all gone away. Um, it says in Proverbs, to rescue those who are being led away to death, to, to sin. People who are being led away in sin, that, because sin leads to death. And it says, if, and if you say, behold, you did not know this, does he not keep his watch over your soul know it? And will he not re repay man according to his works? This proverb is a call to guide each other towards righteousness because judgment is coming for sin. The book of Ecclesiastes closes with a similar warning. And it says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that phrase, the whole duty of man, could be rendered as the all of man. This pursuit of God and God's righteousness is the thing which makes men whole. Sin has broken us and continues to break us. But God came that we may be free from the death that is in sin and have life in Christ, as it says in Romans 6.23. So the law shows us that we are not self-sufficient and that we need God to make us whole through the sacrifice on the cross. And we've been set free from sin by that. But if I'm free from sin, why do I keep sinning? That is a very real question. I'm not saying that in an accusatory manner. That is a very real concern that people have. That is a very real struggle that Christians of every generation have had. Is 
if I'm redeemed, if I'm set free from sin, why can't I stop sinning? And I believe that Paul had the same struggle. And so there is this paradox in the Christian life of sin in the believer. In verse 14, I mean, sorry, verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul was no stranger to this struggle. He deliberates on his own struggle with sin in these verses. We can take comfort when we wrestle with sin because we are not the first ones to do so. So when you have that question, as many of us have, if I'm redeemed, why do I keep sinning? Why do my eyes still wander? Why does my mind go to those places sometimes? That is not indicative of you not being saved, because if Paul struggled with sin, who do we think we are? Paul, who was so much more versed in the, God, the Word of God than we are, who knew the entire Old Testament by memory, if he struggled with sin, we will struggle with sin. The very word Israel literally means one who wrestles with God. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Ouch. Sin is natural to us. It is not easy to forsake sin. We are not made righteous. We are counted righteous. We talked about that earlier in Romans chapter 1. That when it said the righteous shall live by faith. It is being counted righteous, not being made righteous. And that difference is important here because we are still sinners. We are just forgiven. The Christian life is one of being purged and cleansed until our entrance into heaven. Last week I read a quote from John Owen defining receiving Christ as a constant abiding with him and trusting him and submitting to him. And the same goes here. We are still being sanctified. We are still being fitted for heaven. And we will continue to do so until we leave this world. It says in 2 Timothy, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul is instructing Timothy that sin is a trap, and it will ensnare you if you are not vigilant to pursue the things of God. It goes on to say a little bit later, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The bottom line is, we know better. The scriptures testify that we do. The word of God reminds us almost ad nauseum that sin leads us away from righteousness. And darkness can have no fellowship with light. Paul wrestled with his flesh, doing the things he hated, the things for which Christ died. Such is our plight. We find ourselves in combat with a caged enemy. A late um, general during the, from the time of World War II, George Patton, gave a speech. And, and in this speech, he said, Americans traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. Christians traditionally love to fight. All real Christians love the sting of battle. And while I am in no way making a case that George Patton was a born-again believer and that he was the epitome of Christianity, I believe that we can take some creative liberties and apply that statement to the church. That the Christians are called to fight. We're called to fight against the things for which Christ died. There are many illustrations in scripture of combat. We have laid before us a fight, a fight between wickedness and righteousness. The Christian life is not easy. Among other things, it is a war. The fight is not a pretty picture. We do the things our spirit hates. God hates sin, and when he puts, our, puts his spirit within us, and he starts changing our nature, our spirit hates sin when we sin. If we are being convicted of the sins we commit, it brings assurance that we are born again, that we are, in fact, among the redeemed. Verse 16, it says, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This conviction shows that there is an opposition. The unregenerate don't hate sin. The sons of God, the children of God, the, the church, the born-again believers hate their sins. The sons of God long for the day when their sins are ripped out of their nature completely. Now, when we sin, those of us who are in Christ, when we sin, it doesn't feel good. Maybe in the moment, but then afterwards, when the gravity sets in, I just did that. The air I breathe was made for God's glory. It was made by him and for him. And I take that air. And I use that to fuel my rebellion of him. But yet I still breathe. By the grace of God, I still breathe. This is the outlook of Christians. When we have that, that tug between sin and righteousness, that is um, indicative that we are in Christ. That we want to fight sin because we hate sin because of what God is doing in us. First John chapter 3 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. 
By this it is evident we are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The tug of war we experience with our sin tells us something's different. The real concern is when there is no fight, when we have no desire to be purged of sin, when sin is something we get comfortable with. But if there is that struggle, there is because the Christian walk, in some ways, is a fight. That we are fighting to subdue that sin that was so rampant in our lives before. Many, if you interact with enough Reformed people, at some point you will probably hear the statement, you're not David, in reference to the many times people take David and Goliath and turn it into... What is the Goliath you're facing in life? And I understand the sentiment. I understand the need to properly exposit the Word of God, that we don't go straight to application, but there are nuances that play into how we interpret. But I, I would take your You're Not David and raise you a Thomas Brooks, where is the Goliath head of lust that you have slain for Christ's sake? So the Puritans would have agreed to an extent with the what is the Goliath mindset because our sin is the Goliath who needs to be subdued by the people of God. But the, that only happens by the power and providence of God. There was nothing in David that allowed him to kill Goliath. It was all of God. And for any of us to kill sin, as John Owen once said, to mortify sin, which is a very strong word, to mortify sin, that, that cannot come from us, because there is nothing good which dwells in me that is in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The fight is hard, but God and Satan are not equally matched. We've all heard the, the two wolves illustration. You have two wolves inside of you, and the one that you feed is the one that wins, and some of these different illustrations. That's not what we're talking about. God and Satan are not equals in this fight. As I said earlier, we're fighting a caged enemy. If, if they were truly equally matched... then God would not have imparted his spirit into such weak vessels as we are. But it says in the Bible that God placed the gospel in clay pots, so that God may be glorified rather than the medium. We are in a fight, but not by our own abilities, not by our own might, not by our own abilities. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This fight is not with earthly means. Okay, we don't fight sin with tanks. We don't fight sin with nukes and bombs and things like that. We fight sin with the Word of God. We fight with spiritual weapons because it is a spiritual battle. As it said earlier, the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. And there's, there's a twofold aspect here. That what the flesh does is a product of the spiritual battle going on within me. Within my sin nature and my flesh nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we are 
Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. It says in Isaiah 2, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Sin will not win. Satan does not have the final laugh here. We are fighting a battle that's already decided. And when we struggle with sin, we've got to keep that in mind that ultimately sin will be washed away. Sin will be dealt with completely and permanently. And the way this ends is we will dwell with God in an environment where sin doesn't exist. And it's just holding out until that day comes. And as we continue holding out, the presence of sin in our lives will go down. And that's part of why we're struggling, why we wrestle with sin, because it's being purged out of us. And that, that's not a product of us. That is a product of the God that is within us, of God's Spirit um, changing the way we think, the way we operate. It says in Ephesians 6, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. As I referenced earlier, Thomas Brooks once wrote, Where is the head of the Goliath that you have slain for Christ's sake? We must fight sin. We must declare war on the sin that entraps us, because we have died to sin, and we cannot go back to that way of living. We are bought with the blood of Jesus, so that we may glorify and magnify his name with our obedience, rather than our eternal punishment. Verse 21 so I find it to be a law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now he says a law, that the phrasing here has gone from the law in the beginning to a law here. So Paul's speaking in a generic sense. He's not describing the Mosaic law, but a way these things are generally ordered. Uh, this is, Paul finds this to be a rule, would be a better, another way of understanding it. When I want to honor God, sin is present. Paul knows what is evil. It is part of knowing what honors God. But the sin nature, as he calls it, the flesh, operates as though sin is king rather than God. And so we are looking at a battle for the throne. But the one opponent, their fate is already decided. It's just, it is futile. 
Paul is at war with himself, between the sin nature he was born with and the sanctifying mind of Christ that is gradually, systematically dominating every area of his life. And that is the same fight that every single one of us is in today. That we are in the process of killing sin and living in Christ. As John Piper once wrote, we must not make peace with our sin. We must make war. The spirit is willing to obey Christ. Our body is not strong enough to starve itself of sinful passions by its own might. This is why Ephesians contains that powerful exhortation, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because the way out, the way we, we win with sin is not because I have the mental discipline to guard my eyes. It's not because I have the mental discipline to um, avoid certain words. It's not anything like that. It is because of the Christ that is in me. It is the remedy is in Christ. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The only hope that exists in that journey to kill sin and live in Christ is Christ. Who will deliver us? How will he deliver us? Who will deliver us? God. How will he deliver us? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a redeemer. We have a deliverer who promises to deliver us fully and finally from the body of death. From this awful substantive burden that plagues us all our lives. After pouring out his heart, Paul concludes this section by saying that if we have problems walking in the Christian life, inconsistencies in our pilgrimage, we can look at him. He has the same problems. No triumphalism flows from the pen of the apostle. He has, he was cleanly in touch with who he was in his fallen condition. But he was also keenly in touch with who he was in Christ Jesus, who had rescued him from the principle that resides in the flesh. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on Romans. See, the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves or deliverer. Deliverance from this body of death, from this tug of war with the flesh that only draws us to the things God hates and has deemed as wicked, will come from Christ. It has come from Christ. Your deliverance is not a future event. You are in that now. I am in that now. We are wrestling with a conquered enemy. And in that case, Paul closes with, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Despite the fact that we wrestle with sin, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that we will fail Christ. We are human. We will fail Christ. We will mess up. We will never be perfect this side of eternity. But we will not be condemned for our shortcomings. Because we have a God who is bigger than that. 
we have a Christ who has more mercy in himself than there is sin in us. On this passage, Charles Spurgeon makes the comment, What a grand keynote the apostle strikes in the first verse. No condemnation is the first note of the chapter, and in the last verse it is no separation. What glorious music there is there. Happy are the people who have a share in this double blessing, but unhappy are the men and women who know nothing of it. The current wrestle with sin is not the end of the story. Fight on with the strength of God. For one day you will stand in the presence of God without spot or blemish, and you will be defined by no other factor than the fact that you are his redeemed people. You are a saint and a child of God and will dwell with him forever, an environment where the sin that tried to entrap you today will not exist. The righteous law of God shows us how we can be made whole, and the gospel shows us who can make us whole, and the mortification of sin proves us to be that we proves to us how we are being made whole. You may be struggling with sin today. I I struggle with sin. I'm not saying this as someone who has it mastered. I'm not talking about this because I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. I am this is something I am learning every day. This is something that we are all learning. We are all learners in this. There are no experts aside from Christ. We are all learners. And I want to encourage you today that if you are struggling with sin, if you are um, in that tug of war right now, that that is okay. Because this is developing you as a disciple. That when things are hard, you're continuing to push because you don't want to put God on the shelf. That he is too real to you to go back to what is easy. And so you have this inclination to push back on what on sin. You are fighting it in your conscience because Christ is in you and the Christ in you is fighting the sin that is around you. And I want to close with this passage from Jude. This is one of my favorite tidbits in the New Testament. And this is a blessing from the book of Jude. And this is where it goes. When we wrestle with sin, there is a greater glory ahead. And this verse puts it all in all in all in view. And it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Sometimes the Christian, work, the Christian walk is hard. Sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes it is a fight. That There's more to the Christian life than war. But the Christian life is a war. It is a war with sin. It is a war with Satan. It is a war with the things for which Christ died. But that is a war that is not fight, fought of ourselves. Martin Luther once said that the majority of the Christian life is actually outside of you. That it's not, there's nothing in me that compels me to, to walk with God. That compels me to pursue righteousness. That is all of Christ. That is what Christ is doing in me, and that is what that is the product of it pouring out of me. And if you were in that pit today, if you were in that struggle today of, I love Jesus, but I can't stop sinning, I want to give you encouragement today 
that that doesn't mean you're not saved because you are genuinely fighting your sin. You have this – there is this internal struggle with your sin because you don't want to just let go of God and embrace sin. Now, your conscience won't let you do that. And I want to encourage you today that that is a sign that there is something different in you and that Christ is going to take this and he's going to use it because he, he started a good work in you. And he didn't finish it yet, but he will finish it before your entrance into heaven, that you will be cleansed of your sin. There will be a day where sin will no longer be in you and you will worship God. You have fellowship with God in an environment where sin does not exist. I would, if you're a reader, I would highly encourage reading a book called *The Pilgrim's Progress*. And *The Pilgrim's Progress* is a, it's an allegory for the Christian walk, and it illustrates the Christian life as a journey. That there's a man named Christian who is on this long journey towards the heavenly city, and along this way, he comes across many. Difficulties, many distractions, things like worldly wisdom and all these different characters that they represent sin. They represent the different things that discourage us in the Christian life. But it is a, it's a great reminder of the blessed hope that we are going towards. And there is a spot where he, where Christian is led off the path of righteous, led off that path to the city of God by a man by the name of Worldly Wisdom. Um, and he is, basically he's called out by his local pastor that you went off the way you thought God was leading down a wrong path. And this Worldly Wisdom fellow, he convinced you of two things. He convinced you that God didn't know everything and that you were following the wrong path. But he also convinced you that the difficulty of your journey was something you wanted to avoid. And that's very much where we, we get sometimes. We don't want things to be hard. We want um, easier journeys. We don't want the Christian life to be hard. We don't want to have to kill sin. But God has called us to, to what is difficult. It hasn't been this easy thus far. Why would it be this easy now? Now, I'm not saying that as someone who has arrived. I'm saying that as someone who is in the hard, who is in the difficult, that is being purged and sanctified himself. And I want to give you encouragement today that A, there is grace, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that the wrestle with sin you are seeing now, you are not the first one to do that. You won't be the last. But God is going to use this to further develop you as his disciple, as his child. I want to encourage you with that today. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written 
That's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative Word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.